0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, you're listening to New Books in History. I'm your host, Dexter Fergie. Today I'll be speaking with the historian Alan McPherson about a stunning new book called Ghosts of Sheridan Circle, How a Washington Assassination Brought Pinochet's teared State to Justice. The book uncovers the harrowing story of the assassination of a former Allende diplomat named Orlando Letelier in Washington, D.C. McPherson masterfully puts all the pieces together to explain how Pinochet and his Secret Service goons did it, and then he follows the investigations that eventually held the assassins and the Chilean government accountable. It's a difficult and sad story, but it's also one of hope, and it's told with an eye for justice. Um, So, Alan, I really want to thank you for coming onto the show.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank
0: you. Well, I, just, I should note that we are recording this on November 6th. Um, and so, you know, this is in the context of the uh, the U.S. election. It's been a very distractible week. Um, but uh, I actually could not put this book down when I started it a couple of days ago.
1: Oh, that's great to hear. Yes. I mean, it's uh, it's morning again
0: in America. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, let's let's uh, um, uh, dig into the book. So. Like, firstly why did you decide to write this particular book
1: Yeah that's a good question I mean I didn't first of all I didn't know much about this story and I wanted to know more about it but I came around it uh, sort of backwards by looking at the broader sort of relationship of the Reagan administration to Latin America and I thought I want to do something about Reagan and Latin America and I was just reading broadly and I came upon this book that's about Reagan and Pinochet and it's pretty much the sort of high level politics it's very good it's got all the latest documents um, and but it was everything about reagan and pinochet but i realized reading that book that this incident which takes place in 1976 during the ford administration and you know i thought was really resolved by the time that reagan came to power because i really knew it as sort of a 1970s event but i realized that it Remains a thorn in the side of us chilean relationships throughout the 1980s and even into the 1990s. And so I thought, I don't think this part of the story's been told. And so I looked into the books that had been written especially about this, and there's really two to three big ones. They were all written in the early 1980s. Um, and it all essentially ended the story about 1979, 1980, um, when you know the men who actually made the bomb and put it inside the car were, you know, fingered, most of them brought to court, some of them served time. Um, But then there's the rest of the story, which is what about the Chileans who ordered this bomb to be put in the car, right? And what about Pinochet and his secret police? Um, And that's sort of the second half of the story. And so I thought, I think this story needs to be brought up to date. Plus the other element I realized, which I half knew, which is that we have so many more documents now on the US-Chilean relation um, than we had in the early 80s. And so there had to be a lot more detail on the first half. And, and I was right,
0: there is. Mm-hmm. I think that your book is um, extremely good on on that second half, Um, uh, uh, so I'm glad that you were able to tell that. Um, I think it would be useful for listeners um, to maybe talk about the assassination itself. So can you just sketch for us um, what happened in Washington, D.C. on September 21st,
1: 1976? Happy to. So September 21st, 1976, uh, Orlando Letelier had uh, been out of the Chilean government for three years and was working uh, in a think tank, a leftist think tank in Washington, D.C. And so he was going to work uh, that morning. He was living in Bethesda, Maryland, in the suburbs of D.C. And he happened to give a ride to two co-workers uh, who were in the same organization, but they were much younger. He was 44. They were 25. They were actually just married. Uh, Michael Moffitt, Ronnie Moffitt, and um, Ronnie sat in the front passenger seat. Uh, Michael sat in the back, and Orlando drove his car. It was about nine thirty in the morning, so they made their way uh, almost to Dupont Circle. And if you know your viewers know Washington D.C., they know that Dupont Circle is a major traffic circle, but it's also where most of the sort of international organizations, think tanks, NGOs. Uh, are have their offices, uh, so and Sheridan Circle is just down the street from that. So it's a less well-known circle, but it is ringed by embassies and ambassadors' residences. It's also at the end of Embassy Row, which is this long street of embassies on both sides of it. Um, and so, just as letelier's car rounded the corner into Dupont Circle. Uh, there was a uh, sedan hadn't been following them for uh, a while. Uh, they uh, clicked on a, uh, you know, clicked a button essentially um, on a detonating detonation device. Uh, and that uh, exploded a bomb that was under Latelier's car under his legs, sent the car, you know, several feet into the air. It crashed against the parked car. Latelier's legs were blown off immediately Um, he essentially bled to death within really a matter of minutes. Um, Ronnie Moffat was not targeted. There wasn't supposed to have been somebody else in the car. And so there was a good chance she would not have died, but she got out of the car, stumbled. Her husband saw her. Um, her husband, Michael said, well, she seems to be okay. She's stumbling out of the car. So let me go save Orlando because clearly that's where the explosion happened. Uh, Michael in the back was actually generally okay. He had a few sort of superficial cuts. Um, The car was really blown apart. Uh, He sees his wife, essentially leaves her alone, goes, gets uh, Orlando, can't pull him out because the metal is just tangled everywhere, realizes this guy has no legs. Um, But it turns out that Ronnie Moffitt had been caught in the throat by a piece of shrapnel. It had cut her carotid artery and she was therefore uh, swallowing all this blood and drowning in her own blood. Um, And so within a few minutes, you know, the police showed up, uh, you know, ambulances showed up. There was actually this uh, doctor who was walking to work at George Washington. Uh, University Hospital, which was nearby, and she was a black woman, and people didn't believe that she was a doctor, but she was trying to save Ronnie Moffat's life. She knew exactly what she was doing, but it turned out that Ronnie Moffat also was far too gone to be saved at that point, and so she died uh, in in George Washington Hospital. You know, maybe half
0: an hour later. Um, and and so you start the book with this incident, um, and then from there you start to kind of do detective work to find out you know, like how it happened, what led to it. Um, and in that process, you actually kind of become a biographer of all of the people involved, you know, the people who carried it out, the people who, um, you know, called for it and organized it, um, and then also the, the victims and survivors. Um, and I think it would actually be useful and and, and correct um, if um, for you to share with listeners who the Letelliers were um, and why... Pinochet would have wanted to kill Orlando in the first place? Sure. Yeah, there's, a, yeah, there's a, a few chapters devoted to both Letelier's,
1: him and his wife, and then to you know Pinochet and his hatred for them. Um, so Orlando Letelier was a socialist, uh, socialist politician, and actually an economist. He had worked at the Inter-American Development Bank in Washington, so he knew Washington very well. This is in the 60s. Uh, in 1970, uh, the Chileans vote for president a uh, declared Marxist, Salvador Allende. Um, he lasts three years in office, and his first ambassador to Washington is Orlando Letelier because Orlando knows Washington so well. He's also you know very sophisticated, charming, intelligent. Know, you know knows the United States, knows Chile's problems. He's close friends with Allende. Uh, he's also a socialist, and so he spends most of the Allende year's in Washington. Uh, his wife is Isabel Letelier, uh, I should say Isabel Morel de Letelier. Now she goes by Isabel Morel, and uh, she is um, you know a well-educated woman, uh, very devout Catholic, but also somebody who you know gravitates towards uh, socialism while in college in the the 50s and 60s, they have four kids together, you know, and while they're at the IDB, and they're they're at the embassy, uh, in the early 70s, she becomes, you know, uh, I wouldn't say a typical ambassador's wife, but she can't work. And so that's essentially what she's doing. Uh, But she does a lot of charity work, you know, so they're both very politically astute people. Um, but they're pretty kind of, you know, they're real social Democrats in a sense, right? They want democracy to remain in Chile, but they also would like a socialist system. So um, eventually, close to the coup of 1973, uh, uh, Allende, excuse me, the president Allende uh, recalls the ambassador back home. Uh, He makes him minister of the interior for a while and then minister of defense, And I think he's in that last position for nine days when the coup happens. I mean, he's barely got his bearings back in Santiago and, you know, barely knows people in the military. The coup happens. He is taken prisoner uh, and eventually flown out to the very southern tip of Chile, so almost the Antarctic. Um, And he's put in essentially a concentration camp with other sort of high profile prisoners, right? Ministers and that sort of thing. Uh, He stays there for almost a whole year and then he goes to another uh, prison. Um, And essentially after a year, there's so much pressure against Pinochet to release these folks who've never been charged that he is released and ends up, uh, after a short stint in Venezuela, ends up in the United States in Washington where he's offered a job at IPS, which is the Institute for Policy Studies. Um, And so this is where Pinochet starts to want to kill him, right? Because when he's released, he's told in no uncertain terms, you know, the general, which means, you know, Pinochet, you know, does not tolerate any kind of activities against his government. So they're warning him, you know, you act against us while you're free, and we're going to kill you. But... You know, um, Letelier's conscience is too large to be restrained by anything like that. And he's willing to take those chances. So he begins to, you know, be an activist, not for just sort of general matters like human rights and the global economy, but specifically against, against Pinochet, right? Sort of holds Pinochet as the ultimate enemy of, uh, of human rights. Um, And so Pinochet's government starts to see him and a few others whom they also kill or try to kill as Chileans who have gone abroad and are making trouble, right? And they fear specifically two things. Uh, One of them is true, which is that these people might cause disinvestment. uh, And uh, Letelier is one of these people who convinces at least a major Dutch corporation to stop investing in Chile. Uh Pinochet also believes a second thing, which is that Letelier and others are trying to form a government in exile, right, for uh, an eventual return to Chile. And that is not true. Now, it is true that, you know, Letelier and others are popular because they're able to kind of gather several people from the left and from the center, you know, all sorts of anti-Pinochet forces. But they have no plans to return to Chile or to form a government in exile. or right? They barely get along. Um, And so for those reasons, he's targeted. uh, And in fact, he's stripped of his citizenship, I think, about 10 days before he's
0: killed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, your book is also... A like deep dive into like the Pinochet security state, um, and that's actually um, yeah like one, one of the um, really really fascinating things you're you're able to get like up close into these, um, you know these like spaces that are um, you know like like secret um, where Pinochet and um, you know people like Contreras are scheming to murder um, Chileans abroad. Um, can you say a little bit more about? Um, This security state, and in particular, um, like the Dirección de Inteligencia Nacional or DINA, and sort of their uh, uh, yeah attempt to kill all these um, uh, uh, lefty Chileans abroad. Right.
1: Well, that plot has a name. It's called Operation Condor. Mm -hmm. Um, It is a multinational conspiracy uh, by right-wing regimes. Uh, all military or dictatorial regimes. And it starts in about 1975. So it basically starts once Pinochet is firmly in power, in control of the Chilean state. And Argentina has also become a dictatorship. Uh, Brazil is already a dictatorship. So you've already got three. You've got Paraguay. Uh, you've got Uruguay. Um, and so all of the powerful countries of the Southern Cone and of South America uh, start coordinating uh, their efforts to help each other sort of find their leftist dissidents, right? So, for instance, you might have these Chileans who left Chile, but maybe they live in Paraguay or they live in Buenos Aires. And so, right, the Argentine military will grab them and, you know, maybe kill them or torture them or send them back to Chile. So it's that sort of thing. And Operation Condor is overwhelmingly uh, located within the countries controlled by these dictatorships. Now, there's also a small component of it which has to do in which the Tellier is is killed, which is really sort of the extracontinental component of it where Pinochet, you know, and his allies. And Manuel Contreras is the director of Dina, so he's the head of the secret police. And the secret police is really the one that sort of operates Operation Condor. Um, and so they start targeting people outside of those countries. So that what it means is that you're going to kill people in countries where the governments don't know you're doing this and don't want you to do this, right? So for instance, somebody um, is killed, or is that, in fact is is shot but not killed in Rome, Italy, right? And this is not coordinated with the Italian government, uh, at least I don't think so. Um, but you know there are these sort of plots to try to assassinate people all over the world, but very few of them succeed but uh, Latelier is the only one that is plotted that I know uh, to any extent, and and of of course is then executed in the United States. So it gives you really a sense of how, you know, their sense of, you know, that they were, that they had all the power in the world, right? That their sense of impunity, that even, you know, allies who are not, you know, who knew about Operation Condor, like the United States, but were not, you know, full participants in it. Um, they Pinochet and Contreras thought that the United States would let them do this, right, or that they just simply couldn't find them and couldn't punish them. So it really tells you about sort of the depth of this sense of impunity during the Cold War.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, what what. It's so interesting about Operation Condor is that you have all these, um, you know, like nationalist regimes kind of like pooling their resources and um, trying to like overcome the, um, uh, you know, like the the limits that an interstate system impose on them. You know, like you can't just go, um, uh, you know, send your police into another country, but then they're able to kind of like form this, yeah, this like transnational um, uh, network, uh, you know, th- through which they can. Get um, you know Chileans that they don't like, or get um, Uruguayans that they don't like. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's 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 a really fascinating and, and frightening case of like far right in, um, internationalism.
1: Yes, you're right. I mean, there's a real irony there in that, you know, Latin American countries, especially in South America, are particularly jealous of their nationalism, right? There's a lot of, you know, a lot, not a lot of wars in Latin America, sort of, you know, cross-border wars, but a lot of little skirmishes. And even even Pinochet almost goes to war against Peru, almost goes to war against Bolivia, um, you know, and yet he's willing to sort of really collaborate with these allies, at least Contreras is, right? Really willing to collaborate with these allies and letting them, you know, cross his border and take their people. And um, and I think it speaks to their sort of ideological extremes. You know, I mean, they were, they considered themselves to be in sort of a war for civilization, right? They were not only, you know, sometimes they were cynical about things, but they really thought that, Communists were the devil, even peaceful socialists who had come to power through uh, through elections, you know, were demonic and they were going to bring the end of Christian civilization and certainly of Catholicism. Um, And so they need to do, you know, every, you know, every means, you know, were justified to pursue these ends
0: hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that I I also picked up in um, Vincent Bevan's recent book mm-hmm. um, on the Jakarta method. I don't know if that's something that you've come across. I've heard of it. Um, in in all these cases, you have these uh, um, you know like like far right actors, um, kind of like imagining. Um, communists doing the exact same thing that they're really doing, yeah, <laughs> like you know, like these, um, yeah, like executions and concentration camps, and it's it's this weird, uh, yeah, like far right imaginary that um, imagines communists doing just like the, uh, the the most horrific things. There's another aspect to all this, which is uh, Dina in Operation Condor, um, we're relying on um, these like very local actors. And another, um, yes, like another character that you bring up in your book is um, Michael Townley, who's uh, an American um, by birth, but ends up in Chile. Um, And then his wife, who is such a strange person and could definitely have their own book, um, Mariana um, Callejas. Can you just give like a quick, description of who these people were and how like they like what their role was in um in the assassination of um Sure, sure.
1: I mean uh, Michael Townley is the one who has the direct role and so you're exactly right. He's I describe him as a as an American Chilean because he is, you know, his parents or his father works for the Ford Motor Company in Chile, so that's why he ends up there as a child. He goes to high school there, never goes to college. He's not particularly educated. Speaks Spanish very well, with, with some of somewhat of an accent, but uh, he's very much considers himself Chilean. Um, really, sort of adheres to the cause of socialism, even though he's not brought up particularly, you know, to be very political. Um, but he's sort of sucked into these far right groups. Um, during the allende regime right there's these youth groups who are essentially proto-fascists um, and they like him partly because he can teach them how to make bombs so one thing he becomes good at in his you know 20s is uh radio and bombs right he's he's sort of a, a, a tech guy uh, sort of a low-tech guy but he can do you know all sorts of hi fi technology that sort of thing So he can make bombs, he can make radio-controlled bombs, uh, he can make Molotov cocktails, and so they're really into him because of that. So once the coup occurs, then a lot of these sort of proto-fascists integrate into the government, they start doing the bidding of Pernice, and so does Michael Townley. So Dina turns to Michael Townley, one, because he's a good bomb maker, And two, because he's an American. So not only does he speak English, but he can go back and forth to the United States and either buy bomb-making equipment um, or just connect with people there. And some of the people he connects with are other anti-communists and especially Cuban-Americans who hate Fidel Castro, who've moved to places like New Jersey and Florida and are willing to do anything that Pinochet asks them to. Pinochet is the ultimate... Sort of big man against communism in South America. So if you're associated with him, your stock goes up. So we can talk about the the, the Cubans later, but um, you know Townley is sort of the linchpin of all of these forces so of Dina, of the United States, of the Cubans, and he can make a bomb. So um, he's sent out on several of these missions abroad and is is implicated and has been in many many court cases since then, um, but he's asked to make this bomb put it under Latelier's car and he does so. Um, and he also, so he also marries Mariana Callejas and she is uh, an artist and a writer. She's actually 10 years older than he is. She's got a couple of kids and she's already divorced by the time they get married. So, you know, he's about 20, she's about 30. Um, but, you know, he charms her off her feet and, the way, you know, the marriage doesn't go particularly well. They're both cheating on each other. Um, but um, eventually she also is interested in these anti-Yende groups and then in Dina. She doesn't always like everything about them. Their anti-Semitism, for instance, Um but she goes along with them because she feels this is the great cause of the moment. It's anti-communism and I've got to be a part of it. And so does Michael and Michael is sort of her way of getting into these groups because she can't feel, it doesn't feel that she can offer much or, you know, these groups don't feel that she can offer much to them, but Michael can. Um, And so she never goes to the United States as part of this plot, but he certainly does. And then exits, you know, before, before uh, the killing.
0: Yeah. And, and, um, you mentioned the, um, the Cuban Americans. And so this is, yeah, it's just another, to me, a, a strange twist in the story. You have, um, Cuban Americans who are doing the bidding of, um, um, the Chilean government. Um, can you explain why and how, and, and just kind of, uh, cure me of my, uh, confusion? Right. I mean, these guys are,
1: they're an interesting bunch. Um, you know, it's kind of a long story, but Cuban Americans, you know, came in the, by the hundreds of thousands out of Cuba in the early '60s, fleeing the Cuban Revolution. Most of them end up in South Florida, but a good amount, right, tens of thousands, uh, end up mostly in New Jersey, right across the river from Manhattan. And so they create this Cuban community there, um, and Cubans all over the East Coast will start then creating these sort of small militant organizations. Some of them are peaceful, but quite militant in their ideology. Others are violent. Um, in the early 60s, it's really not a problem for the U.S. government because they they, co- they collaborate with the U.S. government. And many of them train are trained by the CIA. Many of them are part of the exile force that heads out to Cuba in 1961 at the Bay of Pigs. But I'm sure many of your readers will know, your your listeners will know that the Bay of Pigs is a failure, right? So the invasion of Cuba in 1961 fails, and after that, um, especially when the Johnson administration comes in in late '63, they're a lot less interested in what these Cubans can do for them because they've essentially pledged never to try to take over Cuba again. So you've got thousands of folks, maybe tens of thousands, who have been trained in espionage and code breaking, and you know weapons and bombs who now have no U.S. government support. So not only are they prone to do violence against Cuba, but they're angry at the United States. So especially by the early 70s, when even the Nixon government is starting to think about normalizing relations with Cuba, um, these people then turn against the United States government in many ways. They say, we don't owe any allegiance to this government that has abandoned us. But the problem is we can't seem to overthrow Castro, right? No matter how many times we go in our small groups and start shooting things up or burning a cane field or something, uh, we're never able to overthrow this pretty powerful government for a small island. So they start aiming at Cuban um, targets outside of Cuba. And so this tends to then um, overlap with the strategy of DINA, which is to kill enemies of Chile outside of Chile, right? And these people are killing friends of Cuba outside Cuba. And so bombs start going off all over the East coast of the United States. And in fact, in many countries and many capitals of the world. So for instance, the Cuban office at the United Nations in New York gets bombed a couple of times, right? People who might be organizing trips to Cuba, humanitarian trips, that sort of thing, get either assassinated or they you know, their cars get bombed or their mailboxes get bombed. So not that many people are getting killed, but it's a it's a, a, a slew of bombings. I mean, in the hundreds, right, in the mid-1970s. And so the Chileans see this and they say, well, these are the obvious guys who would help us out. Now, the Cubans are, like I said, there are dozens of these groups. And the way that you sort of distinguish yourself and elevate yourself in terms of stature, stature is to affiliate yourself with a more powerful organization. And nobody in the Americas is a more powerful anti-communist than Augusto Pinochet. So this small group is relatively small guerrilla, not guerrilla group, but militant group called the Cuban nationalist movement in Northern New Jersey decides to go to Chile. Some of them, you know, go to Chile and they decide to trust Michael Townley, um, and he basically says, can you help me surveil um, this communist? right? And eventually we're going to assassinate him. And they're fine with that. And in fact, they don't even ask for any money from the Chileans, uh, from the Chilean government, which is remarkable, right? So it gives you a sense of a measure of their sort of ideological commitment, right? I mean, you can criticize these guys for so many reasons, but they are really ideologically committed. They think they are spreading freedom around the world, right? Um, and so that's why they eventually end up helping him. And in fact, um, when uh, when Talley puts the bomb in the car, he's actually in Latelier's, you know, uh, he's in his driveway and he puts it in. He tapes it up. And for some reason, uh, it doesn't work. And so the, the Cubans have to go back the next night, retape it, you know, rejigger it. And they're the ones who then follow the car the next day and and set off the bomb. So they're they're heavily involved in this.
0: Yeah, no, the um, uh, Cuban American terrorism uh, um, phenomenon is such an interesting process, historical event that um, uh, I, I wish there was more written about. Yes,
1: I know I know some very promising young historians who are working on it, so I think we will hear more. But but keep in mind just this one this one statistic that will gives you a sense of how important they were in 1974 Cuban Americans. Uh, accounted for forty-five percent of all terrorist bombings on the planet. Yeah. <laughs> Just Cuban Americans. Oh. Uh and it's that's remarkable, you know. And it, it, it dropped off by about nineteen the early nineteen eighties, but the seventies were really a time when there was a major terrorist wave of Cuban American bombings in the United States and it's largely forgotten by most Americans. Mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That, that, that's, that stat says so much. Um, and so, okay. So, you know, we have, um, American citizens, um, doing the bidding of the Chilean, uh, um, uh, the Chilean So you have, you know, Townley, um, uh, the, the Cuban Americans, um, uh, you know, the, they're the ones who, um, actually carry out the assassination of, um, of a former Chilean diplomat, um, and they also kill uh, an American associate of um, uh, that, that diplomat, um, and they do this all in the United States, in the Capitol, um, and and they're doing this on behalf of a foreign government. Um, so this is just like a, a really strange, like I don't know, like legal hodgepodge situation. Um, like how how did the U.S. handle the assassination? Um,
1: well, let me let me speak to sort of the what legally this means, right? First, one is that you've committed several crimes, but you've, by killing these, I think the Chileans thought maybe that if you kill a Chilean abroad, it's not really a crime in the United States. Now, they would have thought twice had they read the US code, which says that if you've been an ambassador in the United States, you're forever a protected person, no matter what your nationality. And so a crime against you is, it becomes a federal crime. Um, and so the FBI is going to investigate this. Second, of course, they didn't really communicate to the Chileans that there should not be somebody else in the car. And so, you know, uh, although they had told Townley, but, you know, through this game of telephone, I think the message got lost that you really, really should not kill another person. Uh, there shouldn't be collateral damage, but there was. So they killed a U.S. citizen. So that's a separate crime. And then there's all the crimes about, you know, uh, conspiracy, conspiracy to do this, conspiracy to do that, destroying the car, right? There's like nine different crimes committed with this one bump. Um, because it's in Washington, it's also um, it's essentially quickly out of the hands of the Washington DC police and it goes to the FBI. Um, it's handled in you know in federal courts. Um, and I think all of this was not particularly considered by the Chileans. You know, there's this interesting episode in the book where Contreras' right-hand man, his name is Espinosa, has a conversation with Michael Townley, in which he tells him who the target is. And then Townley starts saying, well, how do you want me to kill him? And Espinosa basically says, well, try to do it quietly. Um, you know, maybe a mugging or a strangling or make it look like it was just accidental. But the Chileans around the world will get the message without really raising alarm bells in Washington, right, with the White House and with the FBI. Um, but Antanelli says, Well, I don't really do that. You know, I'm not a stone cold killer. I just make bombs. Um, and the bomb will kill him for sure, you know. Um, and so Espinosa starts hemming and hawing and says, Well, Okay, but maybe you could do it really a quiet bomb or (laughs) make sure it's in a park or make sure there's nobody else around, don't kill any innocent people. And Talley says, Well, I'll try, you know. (laughs) So it's this absurd conversation where they tell a bomb maker to kill someone, but they tell him not to kill them with a bomb. And he says, Well, that's what I do, you know? And so they finally say, Fine, go ahead, go ahead, just kill him, you know, as long as he's dead but they're not really thinking about the sort of political and legal implications of doing all these things. Um, So how does the police handle this? It becomes a major investigation. It's what's called a special at the FBI or was back then. Of course, FBI is under the department of justice. And so there's assistant, you know, us attorneys involved in this. Um, This is, you know, it's pretty clear that this is done by outsiders, Chileans or Cubans and, You know, they've got the scent pretty quickly that it's one of these two groups and maybe both of these groups together, but it takes about a year and a half to get any decent proof. And there's essentially sort of two elements that that tie them to Townley and to the Cubans and therefore to the Chileans. Uh, One is that they've got some informants, informants inside of the Cuban networks. And one of them basically is told by one of the Cubans that they've done it, you know, is bragging about it, and so this small-time crook calls his FBI handler and says, "You'll never, <laughs> you'll never believe what this guy just told me." Um, and so finally, they have you know somebody who can testify, um, and at, at the same time, they are finding that there are these two photographs because there's these two Chileans who applied to come to the United States and they wanted American visas, but It sounded very fishy, and somehow uh, they were refused a visa into the United States, but they had the – and the applications were separated from the photographs. So they have these two photographs that have no names on them, and they are photographs of Michael Townley and then another Chilean who eventually did come to the United States with Townley. His name is Fernandez. Um, And so the FBI or the attorney general's office – eventually publishes these two photographs in uh, Washington New a new a Washington newspaper called the Washington star. And then the Chileans the next day run these photographs in their own newspapers. And within a couple of days, it's clear to everyone who these guys are. Right? Um, what the, what the Americans had were fake names and nobody could find people with those names, but now they publish the photos and the Chile, you know, the- and it comes out in Chile that this is Talonine Fernandez.
0: Mm-hmm. And, the Chilean government, um, you know, is not cooperating, um, uh, especially at the beginning. Um, but pretty quickly, they sense the severity of the situation, um, and uh, yeah. And so, like, once um, those those pictures are published and um, the uh, the men are identified, um, you know, Pinochet himself is um, uh, he, he, he's starting to. Um, uh you know get a little tense uh, they they ease on certain aspects of authoritarianism they release political prisoners um, but then you have this really interesting um uh sort of scene where Pinochet walks into a meeting and um uh, uh and 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 tells his advisors that the um you know the michael Townley situation you know once once um, the u s government starts calling for his expulsion. Um, he called it a banana peel. And if we step on it, the government will, the government will fall. We will fall. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, Chile's response to the investigation and the broader case?
1: Right. No, that's a, that's a great episode. I read this in a, a Chilean biography of, of Pinochet. Um, so once the, Photos are published in Chile, you know, all hell breaks loose and things start happening very quickly. And, you know, you have to, to think about what the United States was thinking at the time or the, you know, the attorney general's office. If they publish this photo, these photos, one of the possibilities is that these men will just disappear, right? They will be killed, buried, and you'll, you'll, you'll bury your best lead. But they feel at this point, they've got to take that risk. And it turns out that it works because the press in Chile is just free enough to publish this kind of thing and then to publish the names once they have the names. Because the press in Chile is not, you know, systematically muzzled, um, but it's intimidated. And so it knows it's certain things that they cannot say. But this is an American story to them, right? It's being talked about in the United States. It's an American crime. So there's a sense that it can't really touch Chile. It's just sort of a foreign crime. And so they publish the photos. Um, and so you don't really know what the editors were thinking right? in Chile. Are they trying to, you know, to sort of to jab at Pinochet through this technique? But it certainly hurts him. I mean, there's always elements inside the Chilean government that want a relaxation of human rights violations, right? Chile has long been a democracy throughout almost all of the 20th century. It's a shock to a lot of Chileans, and especially Chileans in the military, who certainly are anti-communist, but they never thought that there would be a years-long crackdown on any kind of dissidents within Chile. And there's criticisms of Pinochet, right? Pinochet is not all-powerful within the government. He's got sometimes, you know, semi-vocal opposition from other generals. And so I think this is what he means when he says, you know, Chile might fall because there might be an internal coup. And so... At this point, they're considering whether or not to hand over Townley. So there's also the legal issue that Townley is an American citizen. So the strategy of the Americans is to go for Townley rather than try to punish any kind of Chileans or ask for extradition. They will do that later. But their first strategy is get Townley, tell them all we want is Michael Townley, right? Right. First of all, produce him. Once you produce him, we should ask questions. And then, you know, but Townley lies, of course, to all the questions. And then they say, okay, we're going to ask for him to be not even extradited, but expelled. And there is sort of a provision in law in which you can expel people. It's not particularly legal, but Pinochet does it anyways. And so they put Townley in handcuffs and they speared him out of the country. In fact, on a, on a, a, just a private airline, Right. Um, like Ecuadoriana Airlines. And so it could have been that it could have landed anywhere in the world and the FBI couldn't have done anything because you can't arrest a man until he's on U.S. soil. So that's sort of a harrowing several hours on this flight that stops at all these places. Um, so nobody's really sure of what's going to happen, but the Chileans essentially buckle. And I think they're hoping, OK, they've got Townley and Townley's probably not going to say anything to incriminate himself and therefore we're fine. We've given them the American, they're going to leave us alone. But it turns out that Townley blabs, right? He spills all the beans from the very beginning of his involvement with the Chileans. Uh, And so most of the details of what we have of the conversations, right, between him and the Cubans, him and the Chileans, is from Townley's court testimony. So it's several days of testimony and it's it's really riveting. Mm
0: -hmm. I mean, um, just as a side note, I was thoroughly impressed with all of the dialogue that you include in the book Um, at times it read um, it almost had like a, um, like a, a, a novelistic character to it where, you know, you're, you really, um, you know, um, uh, plant your readers into these, um, you know, these, these like real live historical scenes. um, And, uh, uh, and, and yeah, and you just like quote dialogue um, um, uh, like all over the place. And so I, I actually really appreciated that. Part of the
1: book. Well, thank you. I mean, that, you know, part of that dialogue, especially in the earlier part of the book, uh, part of it is from a few other books that were published in the early 80s, uh, Saul Landau and John Dingus, right? These activists and journalists published the best book in the early 80s. Uh, Taylor Branch, a very well known journalist, published another one along with the head of the investigation. And so both of these books have a lot of dialogue. And so some of the dialogue in the book recreates that dialogue but then there's other dialogue that's either after those events or it's other things that i found and sometimes it's you know dialogue that comes straight in the story it's like a journalist who maybe writes a story and you've got a dialogue there you've got a conversation sometimes you kind of have to create that conversations because you might have for instance a memorandum of a conversation from the fbi let's say and so one FBI agent will say, well, I talked to a Cuban and I said this and he said that and I responded this and he responded that. And it's not exactly a word for word conversation, but you can create a conversation because you know right, what they were saying. You sometimes you even know what they were thinking because they'll say, I was thinking this and so I said that, you know. So you can even sort of put thoughts into their minds because they've told you these were their thoughts. And so sometimes there's a little yeah. bit of sort of recreation of this but it takes it takes a lot of, of work to, to 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 create these moments. Uh,
0: yeah, I was wondering about that. Um, uh, you know, in, in academic writing or at least academic historical writing, um, you don't see many dialogues. <laughs> um, uh, but um, like, at least in your book, it it, it really captures the drama of um, uh, so much of the story when you yeah have um, uh, yeah these like real live um, uh, you know conversations that that took place um uh, and, and I mean we we haven't talked too much about it, but um i I, I would love to hear more about um like Isabel Battelier's um uh, you know fight for justice and you know she and some American lawyers launched a civil suit against the Chilean government for the wrongful death of her husband like, all, like yeah, can you just say a little bit about this story? Sure.
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, if you look at the book, if there's one sort of central character that runs through the whole book, it's Isabella Tellier. It's the widow. Um, because she's there from the beginning, right? From essentially the first real chapter where you, you know, the first chapter is not about Orlando. It's about Orlando and Isabel. How they fall in love, how they become politicized, you know, how they sort of rise to the ranks. Um, and the last chapter is always, a, you know, last ha- the last half really is about her pursuing justice So it's partly about her continuing the work of her husband, so working for human rights in Latin America, working for women's rights, especially indigenous peoples. She was less concerned with sort of the world economy and, you know, reordering the world economy the way her economist husband was, but she was more focused on on rights. Uh, And she did, you know, tremendous amount of work on that. She was also important in founding what's called uh, the LaTellia Moffat Human Rights Award, so it's given by IPS at a ceremony every year in Washington D.C. It gathers all of the all of the important people around IPS and the people who knew. So I went last year and it was great. You know, the book was out. I was able to kind of see what these celebrations are about. And they always give prizes to one U.S. U.S. based group and one international group, and they're always working for human rights. And so uh, this terrible event has inspired a legacy of sort of creating this network of different human rights organizations, right, that all essentially revolve around IPS in Washington. So that's why IPS is is really important also to the story. And Isabel's long work with IPS is very important to this. Uh, So then, you know, partly separately from her IPS job, she's pursuing her husband's case, So she's always part of the plaintiffs in criminal cases, and there are a few criminal cases, but then she also is suing the Chilean government in a civil case to get essentially reparations, right? So she and her four sons and Michael Moffat, who has survived the bombing, are suing the Chilean government for dollar reparations. And eventually, I think they asked for something like $5 million, Um, which is, you know, not a fortune for the Chilean government. And in fact, once one judge in the United States says, yes, you have the right to sue, um, what happens is that they immediately sort of execute the judgment by attaching a piece of Chilean property to the judgment. And what that means is that they ground a plane of the Chilean airline. Right, It's a Chilean national airline owned by the government, Chile basically says, "Well, we own it, but we don't control it. Therefore, you can't you can't you can't have our plane." Um, some U.S. courts are saying, "Yes, we can." You right? know, it's, it's essentially a five million dollar plane. It's worth what we feel you owe these families. But then that decision will be reversed in in, in civil courts. In fact, that, you know the whole story is in the book. But I've also got an article in a law journal that's coming out uh, pretty soon about this court case. These court there's two separate court cases and how they have influenced the history of sort of counterterrorism in the United States through civil courts, right? There's a whole history of suing terrorists for damages rather than suing terrorists for criminal offenses. Uh, and so this is part of that long legal history.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean I I would um uh, be really excited to read that because um you know like your your entire book is really about borders in different ways, you know like violence across borders and then how to pursue justice across borders. Um and so um yeah the uh um the the civil case where they yeah they 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 tried to you know, basically take Cuban or um, Chilean assets in the United States. It just raises so many questions about, you know, the the boundaries um, um, between states. And then also, um, you know, like you have, um, uh, you know, a country kind of like operating, Um, you know uh, a company beyond its borders and that raises other, it's, 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 it really is like an interesting story in its own right.
1: It is. It is. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating tale of just this uh, this Chilean airline and what they did and does it constitute, you know, criminal, you know, so criminal behavior because it's clear that all of these guys knew that Dino was using its planes to traffic, materials, traffic agents. I mean, at some point, you know, at some point, apparently, they even gave Michael Townley, they let him into the control while the plane was in the air, right, into into the cockpit. Sometimes they gave him control of the airplane just for kicks, right? They let him smuggle bomb-making materials on the plane, and they knew all this, and they were basically told by Dina, you have to let this guy do whatever he wants. Uh, The U.S. government knew all of this, or at least finds out, you know, a few years after the fact, and Excuses the Chilean government from almost all of these charges because they say, well, it's, it's not really clear that the Chilean government owns this airline. Uh, and it was five years ago. So, you know, we can forgive this. I mean, that's what happens when you have Cold War allies, right? You forgive a lot of their sins, even though they're pretty serious sins. Um, and at some point, Townley even had this liquid that was basically like sarin gas. But in liquid form and in a Chanel Number no. Five perfume bottle that he just put, like in his shirt pocket, right on the plane. So if he had just sort of tripped on the plane, this thing had fallen and it would have gotten out. It would have killed everyone on the plane, including the pilots. The plane would have crashed, you know. And nobody's asking these questions, right? There, you know, he often didn't have to go through security before getting on these planes, so he could carry anything he wanted on these planes. Um. And so the judges in the U.S., some of them are saying, this is outrageous behavior. We can't let people do this. But, you know, international treaties often allow you to do this. There's international norms that make it very, very difficult to sue foreign countries. Uh, And so the United States was often sort of legally stuck and couldn't really do much. So it's really, to finish the sort of reparation story, it's really with the end of the Cold War and the change in government that the Letellier and the Moffat families get reparations, right? And I should also say there's Ronnie Moffat's parents, so those are the Carpens, who are also suffering through this. They lose their daughter, who's 25, and the prime of her life. And I think they get a little bit of money out of this also. Um, but eventually what happens is that uh, Pinochet is out of power by 1990, uh, the Bush administration, the Bush first administration, um, wants to normalize relations with the Chilean government, cannot do so until there's progress on this one case, right? This is, this has been passed into law by the Congress. You have to have progress on the Letelier Moffat case to normalize relations. So Bush also wants to visit Chile. He wants to have, he wants to integrate Chile into NAFTA. And so they put together a commission once democracy has returned to chile that will decide if these families get anything and how much and they decide on something like 2.9 million dollars and so the families eventually get that kind of money by 1992 1993 uh under the bush administration and so they do get something and with that they're able to kind of finally be done with these 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 civil cases
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think um, I'd, I'd be remiss if uh, I didn't mention or if we didn't talk about um, what happens to um, the the culprits. And so, um, you know, the 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 people who carry out the assassination um, uh, are um, uh, charged with, with the exception of Michael. Tal- Actually, you, you'll have to explain yeah. explain all this. Yeah, but, it's, um, it's
1: complicated. I might not get all the details right, but essentially, this is what happens. So, Townley makes his confession in mid-1978, right? So this is a year and a half after he's committed the crime. Um, He pointy fingers all the Cubans. There's five Cubans who are then dragged into court with him, except two of them are already on the lam. So three others are actually physically dragged into court. Um, They're all found guilty. Michael Townley strikes a deal, right? So he gets three years in prison, Once he's finished with prison, he goes into witness protection program, and he is still alive, as far as I know, and still living under witness protection program. Um, Once in a while, he is trotted out and testifies in some case or gives an interview. As far as I know, that hasn't happened in 10 to 15 years, but I'm assuming he's still alive. I'm not sure we would find out publicly if he died, um, but I'm guessing somebody would tell us. So he's not that old. He's probably in his 70s, maybe 80s. So um, my guess is he's still alive and probably living on the East Coast somewhere. Um, The three Cubans are found guilty of just about everything they're accused of. They spend a little bit of time in jail, but then their case gets, there's an appeal, um, and then all their three cases get overturned on essentially technicalities. I mean, these are ridiculous technicalities, but this happens all the time in the US criminal system. So these guys serve almost no time in jail. Two other Cubans are on the lam until 1990, I think. And both of them are found by the FBI within months of each other, living in South Florida, out in the open. They've barely changed their names, right? But because they're sort of in this sea of Cuban Americans, the FBI is not really looking for them anymore. Interestingly, one of them is found through a television program, so back then, there was a very famous TV show called, uh, was it called, America's Enemy Number One, or America's Most Wanted, sorry, America's yes, yeah, Most yeah. Wanted. And it would show these, it was like a real crime TV series, I and mean, it wouldn't, you know, it would dramatize them, but it would show images of people and saying, if you know where these guys are, we're looking for them, call this number. And it would get, you know, they solved so many crimes through this, this very sensationalistic TV show. That's how they caught one of these five cubits. Um, and so in, by 1990, these two guys get caught. And by then, uh, the court systems are a little bit tougher on these guys and they do spend, I think, seven or eight years in prison. And remember, you know, these guys helped make a bomb. Uh, I can't remember if these guys actually pushed the button or not, but they were part of this conspiracy, but they didn't you know, physically kill anyone. They didn't order the crime. So seven to eight years seems reasonable. I think they're I think they're given 12 and they serve seven to eight. So that's pretty reasonable. But these other three guys, and now these five guys, as far as I know, are still alive. They all live in Florida. I think at least three or four of them live in Florida. They still know each other. I've seen pictures of them that's like five years old. They give they give interviews in which they essentially um, you know, confess to having done this crime, and they're heroes. They're heroes in the, the Miami Cuban uh, community even though they're essentially confessed terrorists. Uh, so that tells you a lot about the sort of Miami-Cuban community that, you know, once again, just voted for uh, a Republican president, right, because they were scared into believing that communism was coming to America, right? So there's, there's some, real, uh, some real parallels here. So those guys are all free today. Uh, what happens in, to the Chileans is that there are essentially three Chileans that could go to jail over this, Contreras, the head of the secret police, Espinosa, his right-hand man, and and Fernandez, who does some surveilling. So he's a, a lesser port person. Fernandez, so all three, excuse me, in the early 80s are the Americans ask for them to be extradited to the United States, and a whole trial happens in Chile and it's refused, right? Because clearly this is, these are military courts, and there's no way that the Chilean, I mean that pinochets, Chilean, you know, military-dominated courts is gonna allow three military men from Chile to be sent to the United States. Still, you know, the United States has to try try it and it fails. So throughout the 1980s, it's very difficult for the Letelier family to keep the case alive in Chilean courts, but they managed to do it. And one or two days before the statute of limitation is going to expire on these on, on the on two remaining guys because Fernandez defects the United States in the 80s. But the two big guys are left. And by this point, it's 1991. Pinochet is out. The Democrats are back in. And they indict Contreras and Espinosa. It takes two years to find them guilty. And it takes two more years for the Supreme Court to ratify the sentences. And that is when Contreras, right, the former head of secret police and his chief of operations finally go to prison and they go to a prison that is built just for them. Um, That's how scared the civilians in Chile are of the military, even four to five years after the military is no longer running the government. Right. But Pinochet is still there and he's either head of the military or he's a senator at this point, but he's still very powerful. Uh, But finally, my book essentially ends in 1995 when these two guys Go to prison, um, and while I was writing the book, uh, Contreras, who's sort of you know the big bad guy in the movie, in the, <laughs> excuse me, in the book, uh, dies died in two thousand and fifteen. While I started writing this book,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, and, and um, when he died, he was uh, serving something like um, like over fifty sentences that amounted to about five hundred and twenty six years. Um, so yeah, so he he's definitely a, a bad guy in the book. Um, and I, I know that I've already taken up a lot of your time, but I, th- I think it'd be worthwhile to ha- just talk about one more thing, which is like, I want to know, I want to take a step back from all of this. I, want, I, I would like to hear um, your thoughts on what this all means for like US foreign policy and, um, you know, US Chilean relations. Um, like, yeah, like, what is like your, your, your takeaway? from, you know, the the incident and the fallout and, and all of that?
1: Yeah. Well, God, it means so many things. Um, you know, for the United States, one thing that stands out to me is sort of the folly of allying with dictators, right? Because, you know, a government like the Nixon slash Kissinger government of the mid-1970s, really was falling in line with Pinochet, almost more than Pinochet was falling in line with them. I mean, they knew about Operation Condor. In some ways, they assisted in Operation Condor. They certainly sort of turned a blind eye to everything that it was doing. Um, It basically didn't want to know, but also didn't want to stop it because it was serving their needs, but they also lost control over it, right? Once you have an ally that uh, is a monster like Pinochet and you empower him to do so much evil, He's going to think that he can do anything he wants, anywhere he wants. And so it's really a story of the United States sort of losing control of the Cold War, right? I mean, these guys are so ideologically driven and so violent and so empowered by the tools of the U.S. empire that they feel like they can go way beyond what even the United States, right, their patron country wants them to do. And so... It's a story of then both parties, Democrats and Republicans, deciding we got to rein this guy in. right? He's gone way too far off the reservation. Uh, But it's very difficult to do that because he's so empowered by the tools you've given him and sometimes literally by the weapons and the money you've given him. Now, what it means for human rights in Chile and South America is is equally as important, I would say. So this isn't necessarily U.S.-Chilean relations, but it's sort of Chilean politics and South American politics in that this case sets many precedents. It's an exception in some ways because it happens in D.C., but because it happens in D.C., it allows the Chilean, Chilean jurists to prosecute this case first, right? Under Pinochet, there was a law called the Amnesty Law, It's act, in fact, still on the books. And it said that you could not punish anyone in Chilean government for crimes committed between the day of the coup and sometime in 1978, which is the, the worst of it, right? I mean, almost everything happens in those years, um, and so normally that would include uh, Letelier, but the United States government insists that you cannot include the Letelier case in this amnesty law, and so it is explicitly excluded, which means that the United States and therefore Chileans too can pursue this case. So. It allows the freeing of a lot of documents within Chile and a lot of testimony, and so those documents can then be used in other cases. And of course, it it outs Contreras and Espinosa and Fernandez, and it links them to Pinochet. There's a whole debate about whether Pinochet or not ordered this particular hit uh, in the 1980s. The CIA comes to the conclusion that yes, he did. And by the way that conclusion reached by the CIA in the 80s was only made public in 2015 after I started researching this book, right? And this document came out that where the CIA said, we believe that Pinochet did this. It's not just Contreras, right? It's not just a secret police choosing the target, it's Pinochet. Um, So the case allows also the Chilean journalistic establishment to report more on human rights and to report on this one specific case. It tends to sort of, awaken Chileans who might be kind of not really politically inclined to think much harder about how terrible this government is, right? Because once you get rid of the dissidents and the leftists, most everybody else is just kind of scared. But a lot of them think, well, Pinochet is not that bad a guy. He's restored peace. He's gotten rid of communism. You know, this is not so bad, right? The economy is doing relatively well. Sometimes it did, sometimes it didn't. Um, But this case keeps hammering at that that myth, right, that that, that Pinochet is a patriot and innocent. Um, And the case stays alive through the 80s and the early 90s. And so it's constantly allowing other jurists to say, once we push this case through, then we can find ways of punishing these same men or different men for different human rights violations. And that's exactly what happens in the 1990s. Right. They find all sorts of legal ways of getting around the amnesty law, but they're inspired, and in many ways, they're directly, you know, empowered by the Latelier case. And so it's very, you know, when when excuse me, when uh, Contreras and Espinosa go to prison in 1995, they are the first Chileans to go to prison for human rights violations committed during the Cold War, and they, in fact, they might be the first Latin Americans, right? sort of military men to go to prison for human rights violations during the cold war. So it's a remarkably important and consequential case, case for human rights, uh, for counterterrorism, right. For, for all sorts of reasons.
0: Well, Alan, I really want to thank you for speaking with me today. I um, learned so much from your book and uh, learned, um, uh, you know, more just hearing you talk. So um, thank you so much. My pleasure. And I'm Dexter Fergie. You've been listening to New Books in History.